Welcome to RAGE, the podcast of the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I'm the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. In an era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and a vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is seemingly talking about race. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been front and center in these formulations, as has been a resulting backlash or failure to critically engage with some of these insights. In higher education, we have either taken for granted or ignored altogether the emotional, professional, and even physical risks being undertaken by race scholars. Though race scholars have been doing important and insightful scholarship, research, and creative work for decades, the work has rarely led to any revolutionary change on our campuses or in the communities that we serve. Instead, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced, silenced while policies, practices, and discourses of color blindness and post-racialism have reigned supreme on our campuses and in our local politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the intractability and inability of higher education, and our large society for that matter, to take racial privilege and anti-racist discourse seriously. For this episode, I'm here to talk about such issues with Dr. Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante, an associate professor in the University of Arizona School of Journalism. Dr. Gonzalez de Bustamante is an expert on the history and development of television news and media in Latin America, with a particular focus on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and violence against journalists in Mexico that arose out of more than 16 years of work on commercial and public television covering this region. She is the current head of the Border Journalism Network, La Red de Periodistas de la Frontera, and head of the International Communication Division of the Association for Journalism and Mass Communication. Dr. Gonzalez de Bustamante joins us today as part of her related knowledge and expertise in setting up a hack here at DU and in Denver. A hack, for those that do not know, is a hackathon designed to bring together people with expertise in immigration and people who are knowledgeable about how communication systems and data science might be leveraged to address the needs of those most affected by immigration policies. Dr. Gonzalez de Bustamante organized Arizona Migra Hack a few years ago, and she is here in Denver today because Denver is such an ideal place to launch a Migra Hack as we have a vibrant community that is facing numerous issues related to immigration and the related well-being of racialized migrant communities here in Denver. Dr. Gonzalez de Bustamante, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I met so many great students and faculty on the campus here at the University of Denver, so I'm excited. Oh, we're really thrilled to have you here. Um, and I know our listeners uh, would really love to hear about your journey to becoming a professor at the University of Arizona. So I'm oh, wow. wondering if you might oh, share with us that journey. This is only a half journey. an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Cliff Notes version, right? right? Yeah, okay, I'll give you the 30-second soundbite since that was... Kind of my previous life um, before going into academia was was I was a working journalist, and so I grew up in Northern California and saw every once in a while I would see uh, a, a person of color on TV and say, oh, that gave me the idea that maybe I could do that. You know, maybe I I could be a, a journalist. I liked writing and communicating, so I studied journalism at San Jose State University. But uh, double majored in journalism and foreign languages, um, concentrating on uh, Spanish and French, and then um, worked as a journalist for about 15 years, and then mostly in television and uh, in the Southwest, in California and Arizona. 
And then along the way, I thought, oh, I should probably, do, maybe I should go back to graduate school. So kind of halfway in between um, my career, I started working for uh, public television uh, after working for several years in commercial news. And uh, then went back to graduate school, got my master's in Latin American studies, and really, really fell in love with questions having to do with the borderlands and borderlands theory and uh, what was happening with the media and the border. And uh, then I ended up going and getting my PhD in history at the University of Arizona as well. So I've been at the University of Arizona for 12 years now as an uh, as first assistant professor. I'm an associate professor now. And that's my life in a nutshell. <laughs> that, that's I mean, it's sort of quite a journey. Um, and I sort of have a whole bunch of follow-up questions from that. But you know, we only have a limited amount of time. But yeah. I, I'm actually curious, um, when you were growing up in Northern California, um, and prior to entering academia, when you sort of saw, what was it like? What was the media like? And, and, and mm. the reason I say this is yeah. um, I grew up here in Denver. And, and I always sort of think about the ways that that kind of our experiences growing up really impact us, you know, sort of our future questions and how we identify and, and, and sort of the research projects that, that we explore. And I was doing some work actually in Peru. Um, and at the time, um, it, it was in Lima, Peru, and actually the U.S. feed came from the United States, from, from Denver. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and my hosts there told me, they were sort of surprised that I was from Denver because Everybody they saw on TV did not look like me, and <laughs> yeah. so um, so I'm just curious if, if California is different and kind of your engagement. I mean, with I, media. I think uh, when you look at just in thinking about television, uh, newspapers, um, and news outlets uh, are a little a little bit different. Um, but when I was growing up, I mean, it was as I said, rare that you would see uh, um, somebody like me uh, on television, uh, and things have gotten. A little bit better there's a little bit more representation but that's still an area I think that we could work on quite yeah. a bit um, more representation in newsrooms and also in um, management so that we have kind of the news actually ends up looking a little bit different so the coverage is what I'm talking about ends up including um, more people more voices which is was the case when I was growing up in Northern California. There was like certain elite viewpoints, um, not a lot of voices from people of color. And, um, and so, and certainly there's the economic side to that. Who gets, who gets to be given a platform to talk about whatever their ideas are or their expertise. Um, so I think there's still a lot of room for, for change in that, in that way. Sure. Um. You, you talked of, as part of this journey that you began to make the shift to academia. Mm -hmm. um, you, you pursued a master's degree, ultimately a PhD, um, and you had spent 16 years as a journalist, very yeah. public, high profile, mm -hmm. you know, at least very public uh, sort of um, engagement with the world. And then you started to think about academia, which historically, uh, for many of us, doesn't have, have that same sort of public sort of presentation. Um, or at least the public profile might mm -hmm. be one that's not so obvious. So what what was really kind of behind that shift and that change? Well, that's a, a great question because it wasn't like when I was an undergrad, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a professor someday. I'm going to get a PhD. I, would, I was like the last person really, maybe not the last, but an unlikely person to get a PhD and work at a, a research one institution just because um, I was, I was not even, it wasn't even kind of in, 
as a prob as a possibility. So that kind of tells you something about you know kind of what we what we expect of ourselves and what we think is, is possible. So I like that's. I'm straying, but I think as a as a professor of color and on a predominantly white institution, I try to be a role model. At least I'm a professor of color there, and then actually allow students or encourage students to think about think bigger than than what they might be uh, inclined to do, in, unless somebody sort of like encourages them to push their boundaries too. Yeah. I, and I'm curious in, in terms of that, because being a person of color, a professor of color on a predominantly white university, um, doing work that's focused on the borderlands mm -hmm. and sort of doing work to some extent, too, that has a very activist bent uh, with, with, I see sort of Migra hack as sort right. of you know, having, again, this public persona, but being very connected to communities and, and to activism. Um, a, a couple questions that sort of re lead from that. Um, first of all, how has your work, how have these projects been received by the University of Arizona, either your students, your colleagues, higher administration, alumni? You know, uh, I was warned that prior, some of this I started getting involved in before getting tenure, so I was sort of warned by some faculty that I'm like, this might be a little too political, you know, just be careful about that, but I never felt um, that I was being discouraged or anything like that. It's just that I think people wanted, these were non-professors of color that, um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but just, um, I think maybe they were trying to look out for me, um, but I just felt like um, it was so important to, to talk about certain issues at the time. Um, SB 1070, the um, Show Me Your Papers law in Arizona, which Colorado has something similar, had just passed um, at the point when I was starting to go up for tenure and I got involved with um, another professor um, who looks at some of these issues from a sociology standpoint, um, Otto Santana, who's very well known. Um, and so we got together, we uh, worked on an edited volume on Arizona Firestorm that brought in media experts and uh, sociologists, um, ethnic studies perspectives to talk about what was going on in Arizona, but also to use sort of an Arizona, um, I mean, I think conservative forces use Arizona as a laboratory, so we were using it as a laboratory too for getting the scholarship out and uh, trying to inform people about you know, the, why the, it's important to, to know what's going on, really. Yeah, and do this as an untenured faculty member? Yeah, oh. yeah, so. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I was, I don't think it really came into play in a, in a negative way with how my tenure, um, you know, package was, was looked at. If, if anything, it was probably viewed in a positive way. Yeah. So. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> do, do you organize as, you, as you're thinking about um, these projects and you, from your very early age? Uh, it seems like you're resistant to disciplinary boundaries um, and you're really mm -hmm. looking to mm -hmm. collaborate yeah. right, uh, with other scholars, um, activists in, in this work. Um, where do you think that comes from? And, and, mm, and, that's a good question. Yeah. I think it's just because I'm interested in everything. Okay. <laughs> you know, from, a, from childhood and also my training as a journalist, you know, you have to be uh, aware of lots of different things that are going on and be maybe not an expert in everything, but at least be aware of 
of some of the big questions that are being asked. And uh, so I think that probably has something to do with uh, the interdisciplinary approach that I take to a lot of my work. And I just really enjoy, um, it's, it's like a, a learning process to me when I can collaborate with somebody outside of my own discipline and learn from them. And then hopefully we can get um, maybe I don't know, not final answers, but help to explain through looking at anthropology, for example, and journalism or sociology and journalism and looking at questions of migration instead of just digging our heels into our own discipline. I find that, you know, these, these questions don't operate in our society alone, so we, why would we expect that one discipline is going to be a, the end all and answer everything? Sure. No, it's, uh, as you know, right, in this day and age, everybody's interdisciplinary, but, but nobody <laughs> is, right? And right. so I think it's, it's really important to think about those opportunities to, to collaborate and to, to cross our disciplines, right, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of get out of our comfort zone, right? Definitely. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, I think one of these areas um, is uh, Migrahek, mm -hmm. uh, something you put together in, in Arizona. Can, sure. can you tell us more about what yeah, it is? Yeah, maybe I should explain what Migra Hack is. It's uh, Migra is the you know Spanish word for uh, the border patrol, the Migra, and then Hack, of course, you know, con connecting that to the um, you know the tech community, and so we put those two together to hack uh, the information and the open data about uh, immigration. So this was a the brainchild of a journalist who covered Im immigration, Claudia Nunez, when she was a, a Knight Fellow at Stanford, and she created the Migra Hack to bring in more diverse perspectives on, um, to, to help tell stories that weren't being told through looking at data. So what the Migra Hack does is bring together in one place for a couple of days uh, computer programmers, like computer experts, uh, web developers, web designers, journalists, uh, activists, community partners, people from community organizations, and uh, put them all into one room, and they all look at uh, the question of the immigration, but come up with their own specific projects. So, long story short, this has, the reason for this is to kind of shed light on you know, we hear people talk about, oh, well, let's, why don't people who are coming across the border just go to the end of the line, you know? Or why don't they um, just come in legally, you know? They're breaking the law. So what, what Migrahack can do is, by looking at the data, show that through the data, there is no line. Or the line is 25 years, you know, for some, for some people. Or, you know, they are actually following the law if they're coming in seeking asylum and saying that they're doing that from the get-go. That's what the legal process is about. So trying to, and use the data as and to kind of get away from these heated discussions instead um, shedding light on on what's really happening. Tell, tell me a little bit more, because uh, I'm really curious about this idea of storytelling, right, mm -hmm. and using the data to tell the stories. Um, How is it shared? Is it shared through... Um, through blogs, through op-eds, through public media campaigns? Like, what's the dissemination? So it's been all of those. Okay. Uh, it kind of depends on what the teams are that are created through the 
Grida Migra Hack events. So we've had cases where we have people from more traditional media outlets team up with web developers and then they put together their own projects and then disseminate it through their own media outlets like a public um, television station or a commercial news station or you know in some cases um, it's a community community group that puts together a video for example and then they put it on their website um, could be bl people blogging about what's what's happening through the Migra hack and then uh, just actually people reporting on on the Migra hack itself so that's one of the, the beauties, I think, of the Migra Hack is that it's very flexible. So in thinking about Denver bringing um, uh, and Colorado having its own Migra Hack, it's really what people here in this community want to do with it and how they want to disseminate the information. One of the things, and I know you'll be, you'll be coming back to DU in the fall at some point, but if you were to come back five years from now, down the road, um, and given kind of your own experiences in Arizona with the Migra hack, what what might be some things you'd like to that would be indicators of of its success? Uh, well, I guess th th this might be hard to measure, but I think it would be an indication of success is uh, people having a better understanding of of what's happening in Denver and what's happening in Colorado with respect to immigration and migration. Um, I've heard from my colleague Lynn Schofield Clark that there are an average of 276 people a day who come to to Colorado. So I'm wondering in Denver, um, where are they coming from, and um, do people actually know that at this point? But maybe the hack would help to maybe shed shed light on that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would hope for in five, ten years, uh, I guess, would be that people would. The journalists would have uh, more skills in terms of how, how to use data visualization tools and data, how to approach data in a way that you can, can tell stories, um, as well as training for people who are in the communities, who are doing the work in immigrant communities, so that they can tell their own stories as well. It sort of seems to me, and, and I'm curious your thoughts too, as you help to build something like this in Arizona, um, and as we're hoping to build something that's successful in the ways you, you've defined it um, here, here in Colorado, what role do institutions of higher education play in, in fostering this and housing it and being a site? I'm not, I'm not quite sure, like moving forward, mm -hmm. like what would be sort of your words of wisdom about what we at the University of Denver can, can do to ensure that it that it exists long into the future? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that universities play a critical role in putting together events like this uh, because universities is, are this in a unique position where they have the expertise and scholarships so of real evidence-based research and the data, and then on whatever subject it is, migration, you name it, um, and then Universities have the connections in the community, and then they have the students who are learning about this, so that they're in this unique position and uh, a responsibility to to play that role, so that they can connect communities with students and scholars, so that you're creating uh, knowledge, and then people are everybody's learning from one another. Yeah, yeah, it's. it's 
institutions of higher education are so so important, right? Kind of as as a site, kind of to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could jump in, here, absolutely. I, from what I can tell, just being here, not even uh, two two days, is that there's great interest here. There are um, professors in all sorts of disciplines, from from journalism to law to uh, sociology who are, are very much committed to this kind of work and the students seem really engaged and so I, I yeah I see great things for for this event for you at, at DU. I think we're excited we're excited about having you here um, and to help us think this through because um, I, I do think it's something that we we at DU want to, to hopefully support well into the future. Um, just a couple more questions for you. Sure. And uh, the first one is this. Rage is the title of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, as a professor of color, as a journalism professor, as a historian uh, who has looked at the borderlands and looked at issues of violence and racialized violence uh, in your own scholarship, and your own activism, what does rage mean for you? Hmm. Oh, rage. I, I love the, the name of, of the podcast. I think to me it's like, it's the energy. It's the energy that you bring to to whatever you're doing. And to me, also, it kind of has this edgy feel to it, or edgy con- connotation, where you're you're trying to f- not just bring energy, but sort of unseating maybe and uh, turning things around and and having people look at things in a different way, and maybe even. Maybe even, I know if I could go so far as to say, having some social change and social justice. That's the feeling that I get when I hear that word. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> we, we hope that's the case. I mean, I think it's, there's so much important work like, like yours um, that is happening and, and trying to reimagine you know, the university as sites to, to make this change happen. So, so thank you for that. Of course. Um, one final question, and really it's, it's any sort of final thoughts, reflections, or affirmations that you would like to share with our, with our listeners for mm. this episode? Well, as a historian and as a former working journalist, somebody who's done this for you know, more than a decade and a half, I, I have come to see the, the history of journalism is, is somewhat of a, an extractive enterprise. And, and that I mean, when I say that I mean journalists coming from maybe elite uh, media and going into communities, getting information and getting stories and then sort of extracting them and, and not really giving back too much to communities. And I think that's part of the reason for the decline in interest, perhaps, or credibility in, in, in journalism. Uh, so my approach now is to be more inclusive and engaging with communities, and that's why I really feel deeply and um, am committed to projects like Make the Hack, where we're involving the communities upon uh, about which we are reporting. So it's not just taking from those communities; it's including those communities in the very uh, from the very get-go as to what issues they want to, to be covered and how can they play a better role um, or a more critical and important role in in how stories are being told. Dr. Gonzalez de Bustamante, <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, so much you know, for the th- opportunity. Really appreciate your wisdom and, and your thoughts. Um, and we look forward to, to building on everything you've done. So, so thank you. 
you have reached, we have reached the end of another episode of the Rage Podcast brought to you by iRise at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRise. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter and to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships, and practices to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West. Thank you. Thank you.